Welcome to Testimony, a place where we remember the past to give meaning to the present and educate for the future. My name is Sean, and I'm your host for this podcast. If you've been following along with the previous episodes, I've been visiting some memorials across the greater Chicago area that commemorate genocide. Now, I know that's a rather grim topic, but I don't want to give the impression that this is some sort of trip into the macabre. There's actually a lot of complexity in these memorial sites, especially given that they exist here in America, to remember events that occurred on other continents. The reason that they even exist is due to diaspora communities that have immigrated to America, and the subsequent generations take on responsibility to use their people's trauma as an opportunity to be a beacon of hope and educate future generations. These memorials also serve as what I would call liminal spaces, and that basically means that they straddle the fence between cultural memory of the old country and the present reality of the new country. In the last two episodes, I've talked about how the Jewish and the Cambodian communities in Greater Chicago have created memorial spaces specific to genocides they experienced um, and how they were, how they came to America. The memory of trauma for these communities has become a cornerstone of sorts for making sense of their identity as both Americans and as, as members of an ethnic or religious community. <laughs> This episode, we'll be talking about the Ukrainian community. Now, I knew far less about this community compared to the last two groups I've already talked about. And I guess that many listeners may not even know what their connection to genocide is, let alone point to where Ukraine is on a world map. Actually, Ukraine is one of the largest countries in Europe. It's about the same size as France but it's way over on the eastern side of the continent, north of the Black Sea and south of Russia. Ukraine's only been an independent country since 1991, when the Soviet Union broke apart. But Ukrainian culture goes back more than a thousand years. When it was still a province in the Russian Empire, and later the Soviet Union, many Ukrainians began arriving in America starting in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Chicago actually became a huge center for the Ukrainian diaspora. And even to this day, there's still a neighborhood in the west side of Chicago called Ukrainian Village. Many Ukrainians were already in the United States by the time their people experienced one of the worst traumas in their national history, the Ukrainian famine, also called the Holodomor in Ukrainian, which roughly means hunger death. Somewhere between 5 and 10 million Ukrainians died of starvation during the early 1930s, back when Ukraine was still under the control of the Soviet Union, then led by communist dictator Joseph Stalin. We'll get to more of the historical context shortly, but for now, just know that this famine genocide has become a sticking point in Ukrainian memory around the world, and it continues to be a huge point of contention between Ukraine and its much larger neighbor, Russia. So for this episode, I've traveled out to the west suburb of Bloomingdale, where there's a large Ukrainian Orthodox church that houses a couple memorial sites that are used by the Ukrainian community throughout the Midwest region. I'm here with John Juresko at St. Andrew Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Bloomingdale. How are you doing, John? Great, great. Good to see you, Sean. Good to see you. 
So, John, could you tell me a little bit about what your role is in the parish and um, sure, how you Sean. got involved? Um, you know, I grew up uh, born in Wooddale, Illinois, 20 miles west of, of Chicago. And uh, my parents were uh, both immigrants that came after World War II, as well as my grandparents, to Chicago. Uh, they were of Ukrainian uh, heritage and descent. So growing up, uh, we were very involved on the weekends. Uh, we attended Ukrainian parochial school in the Ukrainian neighborhood of Chicago. Uh, the church was a very big part of our life. But when people started to move to the suburbs, the western suburbs, uh, a lot of the Ukrainians decided there was a need for a Ukrainian Orthodox church out here to service those that had moved out of the city into the suburbs with their families and children. And uh, my parents were one of those uh, that late in the 50s uh, ended up moving to Wooddale. And so we were raised here and um, very nearby this church here, which was was Addison, but it was annexed to Bloomingdale when we built this uh, church. Um, so I was very involved from being an altar boy and, um, and of course, always promoting uh, our Ukrainian heritage uh, even at, at our regular everyday American school, um, we were very, very knowledgeable in the fact that we were Ukrainian, um, and it was held very near and dear to the heart. So uh, we uh, we grew up as Ukrainians, and I, I was very involved in the church as my parents were um, in the uh, administration of the church and volunteerism in the church. Um, so that's how I ended up eventually uh, becoming president of the board. I've been president now of the board for 13 years uh, straight. Uh, I've also been the president of the Cemetery Association, um, and we have a retirement home which has 23 condominiums for the elderly. I'm also on the board of that uh, building that we have here. So we've built sort of a little Ukrainian center mm -hmm. uh, as well as a cultural center. Two years ago, we went through about a $1.5 million renovation of that cultural center mm -hmm. so that we could essentially uh, help, again, the new immigration and their children have a Saturday school have a, a hall where we can have Ukrainian dancing uh, uh, lessons. On Saturdays, we have Ukrainian school, which teaches the children history, teaches them the language, reading, writing, all of the general things from about 9 o'clock till 1 o'clock p.m. every Saturday. So that cultural center building is, is mainly for that purpose. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, the reason that you're here, we have the Ukrainian Genocide Famine Memorial here on our grounds, as well as two years ago, we put up a monument to the Heavenly Hundred, uh, the revolution of dignity that happened in Ukrainian about in Ukraine about three years ago, um, where uh, the uh, special police uh, under the auspices of the former president uh, Viktor Yanukovych uh, began to shoot people, snipers mm. began to shoot people that were protesting. So we have that new monument uh, on the front on Army Trail Road, which is to uh, commemorate all of those that died not only then but throughout history for a free and independent Ukraine. Mm. So a couple of things I want to first note. John speaks about migration from Chicago to the western suburbs. This is a very common phenomenon, not just with Ukrainians, but also with other immigrant communities once they begin to get established in the United States. And this was also certainly the case with the Jewish diaspora, as well as the Cambodians. So within this Ukrainian enclave in the west suburbs, St. Andrew's Orthodox Church remains the central focus point, and this certainly is in continuity with the role the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has historically played in providing services to Ukrainian immigrants, as well as providing a sense of identity and rootedness uh, to the homeland. Most Ukrainians that were immigrating uh, were farmers. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of, of, of Europe, 
and most of them had skills as hardworking farmers. So in order to get to the United States, you needed a sponsor. You needed someone to sponsor your entry here uh, through Ellis Island um, and have an actual um, invitation from them signed that they would be responsible for your well-being, for your uh, housing, your, your uh, making sure that you had a job and food and so on. So uh, what happened is uh, many times people would be asked for workers to come from Ukraine. And as they immigrated, my grandparents, for instance, were asked, they were supposed to be in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, they came in through New York. By the time they left New York and got to Chicago, the job in Madison was no longer available. So they ended up staying in Chicago. Mm. But Chicago, New York, Cleveland, uh, these all became the largest populations of Ukrainians. There was a lot of jobs there. Mm -hmm. And jobs meant that they could survive. And again, most of these communities were all based upon the church. So there were Ukrainian churches that helped these immigrants. My parents, uh, uh, my, my father and his family, you know, spent the first weeks, if not months, uh, on the floor of the church, which still exists in the Ukrainian neighborhood, St. Volodymyr uh, Cathedral on Cortez and Oakley. Hmm. Uh, many immigrants found their first weeks to be living on the floor there. And then the church and other community organizations helped them find uh, jobs in factories and helped them find rent uh, in a basement. My grandmother used to shovel coal into the uh, heater for the building. And in, in, uh, in return for doing that job, they were allowed to have a small space that they could live in the basement. Wow. So this is what many Ukrainian immigrants went through. But Chicago ended up one of the most dynamic and one of the most populated areas for Ukrainians. In the United States, I should say, because Canada has many more Ukrainians uh, and many more immigrants and also World War I Im immigrants much more than, than our uh, area. But our mm. area was already set up, and then the first churches were already in the early 1900s. Some of them have already um, celebrated their 100th anniversary here in Chicago. Um, so we, we did have a, a lot of World War I and World War II immigrants that settled in the Chicago area. We'll come back to the centrality of the Ukrainian church as a collective space for Ukrainian identity. Now, John gives us some historical context as to why many Ukrainians ended up in the United States and other places around the world, and what the nature of the famine looked like in the early 1930s. Ukraine is a very rich land, and uh, there was a lot of conflicts over land uh, due to that. Uh, people trying to take over, if not portions, uh, trying to control Ukraine. Mm. At the beginning of the 20th century, Ukraine was controlled by the Russian Empire. And in 1917, the Russian Revolution, or Bolshevik Revolution, turned the empire into a communist experiment of Soviet socialist republics. And this had major consequences for Ukraine. Uh, and the Bolshevik Revolution, um, unfortunately for Ukrainians, uh, really, really uh, was a, a period of hell. Um, starting uh, from the revolution on, uh, Ukrainian lands and uh, Ukrainian, the, the churches, the people, the farmland, when we start talking about communism and the role of collectivization um, and the fact that many of these Ukrainians were very proud landowners, they lived off the land, whether it be through livestock or through the planting, um, and it was uh, something that they held very near and dear to their heart. So when uh, the Bolshevik regime started to come in and uh, put forth this, this collectivization plan, and in fact, you know, Stalin's five-year plans and such, 
Um, many Ukrainians fought that uh, uh, very much so. Uh, my grandparents as well in the Poltava region, one of the most affected regions of the uh, uh, famine and the genocide, uh, where those farmlands, my grandparents had farmland. Uh, and there was a very unique uh, way that the Russians uh, and the Bolshevik uh, regime uh, would would persecute you. For instance, the, the papers, many papers are open now. We've done some research on our family. And there would be very well handwritten records that would say, you know, Alexander Juresko, he has four horses, uh, three pigs. Uh, he paid his taxes of 2,000 rubles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was such and such year. The next year, it'll say Alexander Juresko, he's only got one horse left, he's got one pig, he's got a son and a daughter that were born, or whatever it was, and his taxes were 5,000 rubles, and he paid them. And then when you get to the third, fourth year in a row, they will say, uh, you know what, he's got no livestock left, of course, because they had to either sell, kill, or eat the livestock um, to live. And then the taxes would be 10,000 rubles. And what did they persecute you for and send you to Siberia for, but was for tax evasion? So it's a very uniquely crafted uh, way in the beginning to try and collectivize. Mm-hmm. But when, when those methods didn't work against many of the peasants, um, you know, Stalin came in in 32 and 33 and really uh, locked, locked it down. Um, and when I say locked down, I, I kind of think of how prisons are where, you know, there's a, a, a wall. Basically, you can't get in, you can't mm-hmm, get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and in return, even if you're found with um, a piece of grain or you found and you killed a mouse, um, that would be a, a punishable crime. Uh, and so how did that all work? Well, many times they would find people to be their informants. So by promising certain people maybe in a village or officers that uh, uh, went to the Red Army, they would promise them that if you could lead us to people who have food or people who are uh, taking or stealing uh, food, as they would call it, even though you were the one uh, harvesting and planting and doing everything, that would be uh, considered theft. Um, if that person could turn you in, they might get something and their family might be allowed to be spared. So they used this sort of manipulation Mm -hmm. um, even within uh, the the people living there where people would start to maybe even turn upon each other um, and so on. So, you know, controlling people uh, through through starvation. And it's one of the most terrible ways, if you think about it, uh, Stalin and Hitler were actually allies at one point. And they talked about different ways of, of doing ethnic cleansing. And as we know what happened in history, uh, you know, I have pretty much no doubt in my mind that Stalin uh, talked to Hitler and said, you know, this uh, starvation, which I tried against the Ukrainians, it takes too long. It takes too long for them to die. You have to think of a quicker way to exterminate people. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, you know, it's very tragic that uh, these uh, uh, warlords, as I call them, uh, uh, you know, we think of, of, of them as basically the devil incarnate uh, because what, what they allowed themselves to do to people who had no, uh, they were innocent, they were hardworking, uh, all they wanted was to be left alone and have their families and freedoms, freedoms that we all enjoy here in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's why my parents always tell me that, remember, this is the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, and it gave our people opportunity as immigrants to live a normal life and raise our children and work hard. And if you work hard, 
you reap the benefits. Unfortunately, those hardworking Ukrainians back in, in that day either had to run, mm-hmm. uh, if you could run, uh, uh, ver- during the various wars, uh, you were stuck between German uh, uh, armies and Ukrainian armies and others. Uh, so in order to survive, you may have to run. And again, this is how uh, primarily immigration started. They were trying to find a better life for their families and to be able to raise their children and to be able to have those freedoms, religious freedom um, and uh, political freedom. Uh, so uh, that was a, a basically a political immigration, both the first and second, mm-hmm. whereas now we have more of an economic immigration right. coming to the United States. John also gives a story of how his own family survived the famine. Just like everyone else, uh, up until World War II broke out, they basically had to run place to place find odd jobs, whether it was mining. My grandfather ended up in the Donbass in the, in the eastern Ukraine, uh, taking any jobs that were possible in order to keep the family fed. And when you finished uh, and you made some money, you might move on a few hundred miles the next, the next way, right? Many Ukrainians ended up traveling westward in the aftermath of World War II and found themselves in displaced persons camps in Allied-occupied Germany. Most of those in the Soviet-controlled eastern part of Germany were taken back to the Soviet Union, while many in West Germany had a chance to find a better life in the West. President Roosevelt's wife, Eleanor, was very instrumental in convincing her husband to allow these people to emigrate to various places. And so many were lucky enough to be in the English or American zones Mm -hmm. and were able to immigrate, whether it be to South America, Australia, Uh, the United States, Canada. Uh, So those are all areas where you'll see Ukrainian populations right now, and you'll see monuments to the famine Hmm. in Australia, in South America, in Brazil. Uh, There were large concentrations of immigrants that were allowed to immigrate to those countries because of World War II had them in these German uh, displaced person camps. Ukrainians here in the United States are very thankful to be United States citizens, and we, as children of those immigrants... You know, we try not to forget the hardships that our parents and grandparents went through in order to give us a better life. But we also realize that the United States is very much responsible for allowing us to have such a wonderful life. And we're thankful. In turn, we don't want to forget the hardships. Hmm. Because if you, uh, as they say, uh, you forget your uh, past, you're, you're deemed to repeat it. If you, right. don't, if you don't realize right. your history and your past. And, and that's what uh, the churches instill in, in the children, uh, even though uh, you are uh, a United States citizen and American, uh, but your heritage, don't forget what people went through in order to give you this beautiful life. Mm. This then segued into a conversation about the actual monuments outside St. Andrews. Could you tell me about the, this, the monument that's right out behind the church? Um, you were part of the congregation back yes. then, right? So. And this was in '93, uh, which was around the uh, was that the 60th anniversary. Yes, yes. Could you tell me a little bit about that process? Well, first of all, the process started here in our church uh, back in the uh, late '70s, um, when this church was being uh, uh, starting to grow and flourish here in Bloomingdale. We started a committee uh, to commemorate the the genocide famine in Ukraine of 1932-33. The main reason that we started that is we had uh, quite a few survivors, eyewitnesses, that were part of our church board and came from eastern Ukraine and lived through it and saw it firsthand. 
We still today have some survivors left, but unfortunately many of them mm-hmm. have already passed away. And so our church was the catalyst for starting the first um, basic committee to commemorate. It was not yet the foundation. These few families started commemorating every year ecumenically. So asking the Catholic Church, the Baptist churches, the other denominations to join us in having a memorial service. We used to have an old wooden cross there. We delineated a specific area that we had hoped someday hmm. would have a monument. But it was just a birch white cross at the time. And for many years, we would have an annual service there together as a Ukrainian community, as well as try to incorporate the Ukrainian parochial schools mm-hmm. to come out once a year and get some teachings. We also had some great historians at that time who did a lot of work on the uh, Ukrainian genocide, like Dr. James Mace of, of memory. He has passed away as well. Um, but uh, he came here and lectured the children and the adults on his findings mm-hmm. and studies on the uh, genocide. And was this before or after the breakup of the Soviet Union? This the archives... started before, okay. but, uh, you know, uh, 1991, mm-hmm. uh, already with the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, that sort of reinforced everything and gave a stimulus, I think, to the Ukrainian community, our independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had always had plans uh, whether or not there was going to be uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union to put a monument there. Um, so many of the families here at St. Andrews, they started that committee as a church committee, strictly here at St. Andrews. Later on, it was changed into a committee that was run by the, uh, um, the church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, together, all the parishes made it more of a regional church committee. And then it was decided, and I'm not positive on the date uh, that it was decided, uh, probably about 10 to 15 years ago, that um, this should be uh, a foundation and it should be all-inclusive of all denominations and all Ukrainians of all all backgrounds. So it was actually turned into a 501c3 Hmm. foundation called the Ukrainian Genocide Famine Foundation Incorporated, uh, based here in Chicago. Um, The monument itself, uh, the collection was all done amongst Ukrainians. Uh, So, you know, they they gave uh, money freely in order to have this built. Uh, In the uh, book that came out at the dedication, they list all of the donors and such. It was approximately $75,000 at that time for this monument to be built uh, without landscaping Mm -hmm. and things, but just the granite memorial. The memorial was done and designed by uh, a renowned Ukrainian sculptor, the bronze that is on there. Uh, his name is uh, Andriy Kushch. He's from Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, we, they did have a uh, two to three different uh, versions presented mm-hmm. to the committee, um, and they felt that this, this version itself was the most um, impactful. Sure. Uh, and, and, and Can we so talk the, about the, just yeah, the design the itself? and design. Of course, a huge cross with, uh, of course, uh, the, the years 1932-33 mm-hmm. and a uh, wreath of thorns, mm-hmm. uh, similar to the symbolism that you would have with Jesus and right. the wreath of thorns. But below the bronze has a mother cradling the starving child, which... Almost like the La Pieta, like the, like the image of Mary holding Jesus exactly. with the cross. In fact, she looks shrouded like, like Mary, the way that she's dressed, um, and uh, I think that that symbolism there is what has the greatest impact because the mothers having to watch their children starve to death. Mm. Um, no parent should ever see a child die in any way or bury their child. But 
to not be able to feed your child and to have to watch them starve to death, crying, begging, uh, is just, uh, that is just the worst thing any parent could ever mm. live through. And many of them, I'm sure, did not want to live through it. And, um, you know, I, I don't even know, uh, you know, how, how they could psychologically deal with having to go through this. In almost all branches of Christianity, this motif of suffering is a very central theme in Christian theology. The centrality of the cross, where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered and died for the sins of humanity, creates a deep connection for Christians to view their own suffering in this life as it relates to what Christ experienced on the cross. So the representational iconography um, is less prominent in Protestantism, but it's very much manifested in both Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox Christianity. I found clear parallels between the common Christian image of Mary holding the lifeless body of her son Jesus at the foot of the cross and the shrouded Ukrainian mother holding a starving child. Unlike the more abstract versions of memory that I saw at the Illinois Holocaust Museum or the Cambodian Killing Fields Memorial Wall, this memorial to the Ukrainian Holodomor uses prominently a Christian representational monument forged in bronze. In other types of representational monuments, three-dimensional statues have sometimes had a heroic stance or sometimes idealize a person or event. Think, for example, the Lincoln Memorial or the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in Washington, D.C. But I wouldn't put this type of statue in that same category. Sure, the Ukrainian Famine Memorial is in the realist genre, but I would hardly say that these figures are idealized to perfect human proportions. If anything, the statue of the mother holding her dying, starving child is rather expressionistic and angular, and this really accentuates the darkness of this trauma that was the, the genocide famine. The unambiguous Christian symbolism that I've mentioned makes this singular image of the mother and child a universal image of suffering. After all, as, uh, as John said earlier, what more pain can someone experience than seeing your own child die before you and there's nothing you can do to stop it? Below this image of the mother and starving child is a bronze plaque placed on top of the granite base. It has text in both Ukrainian and English which reads, in memory of over seven million victims of the Great Famine, artificially created in Ukraine by the Moscow communist regime. Now there's some discrepancy with the actual numbers of those who died, as there's also a temporary sign next to the monument that claims that over 10 million Ukrainians were starved to death. I asked John about this issue. The numbers uh, that officially were uh, put out by the Ukrainian government, and that is thanks to President uh, Yushchenko, and also to his wife, uh, Katerina, who is originally uh, also here from Chicago, uh, did a lot of work. Her foundation put out this booklet that we have here, and it talks about the fact that at one point it was up to 25,000 per day wow. were being uh, starved. So uh, the numbers, if you think about that, are just astronomical that you can have that much death happening daily. Um, and in that period of 1932-33, uh, to be able to uh, concretely say that it's probably somewhere between 7 and 10 million wow. people were starved to death in that period of time 
those numbers are, are, are completely, completely unfathomable. Yeah. Uh, that, that that much death was going on um, and what that psychologically uh, did to the people of Ukraine. Sure. Because I know even this, the numbers um, have, I think as more documents have been found, like those numbers keep increasing because like I've heard from earlier sources, like I could think conservative estimates was like somewhere between three and five million. I know that monument, that particular one says seven million. And then there's that sign that now says 10 million. So has that, has that just been through finding more, more documentation? Yeah, and, and, and the problem with, with the numbers, and I, and I try to even not uh, quote specific numbers because the numbers are not what's really important. Right. Uh, because if you tell someone that 5 million died, is, is that a small number of people to die by being starved to death? Uh, you know, so I, now the numbers, Stalin was very, very shrewd individual. Mm-hmm. So the documents, if, if we need documentation in order to uh, uh, prove the exact number, we're never going to have an exact number. So I think that that is not really relevant. But we, through censuses, through the papers that have been opened, the KGB papers, mm-hmm. and through what we know uh, uh, through the historians that have been studying this, it's not only what happened in Ukraine, but there were areas in Kubani, in mm. southeastern uh, Ukraine that used to be parts of Ukraine that were annexed by Russia. They, there were Ukrainians there that were killed uh, for being Ukrainian. The same thing starved. And in Kazakhstan, portions of Kazakhstan, mm. um, there are Ukrainians all over. So it's not just the Ukrainians that lived in Ukraine proper at that mm-hmm. time, but the persecution that was happening in other areas that were populated by mainly Ukrainians that were fighting the Bolshevik regime. Wow. Um, so so it, those numbers... Uh, and again, I, I, and we never want to make, uh, uh, we don't want to belittle any genocide that's ever happened anywhere to anyone. But none of these genocides, none of them that you name, can give you an exact number. And that's why I believe the number is not as important as what happened. And like I said, if it was 5, 7, or 10, what does that change? It doesn't change the principle that the Bolshevik regime, that Stalin himself was responsible, not only for persecuting Ukrainians, but today even you'll find many papers on his persecution of his own people. Yeah. So yeah. the millions that, that were killed in Russia for not agreeing to his policies. Right. He called them kulaks. Sure. Yeah. That was... So, and I, I'm sure that term was applied to Ukrainians as exactly. well. So. As John mentioned, the principle of genocidal policies still holds true regardless of the actual numbers. I also think that the directness of the text on this monument can also speak to the issue of educating future generations on the truth that it actually happened. And this is something that Ukrainians have had to fight for in terms of recognition more so than other groups like Jews or Cambodians. And this is largely because of the continual geopolitical tensions between Ukraine and Russia. John speaks a little bit on the history of denial and how the Ukrainian community responds to that. In the beginning, for the first 70 years, while uh, the Soviet Union was locked down and uh, was completely closed, um, they just said there was no such thing. There was no Ukrainian famine. There was no genocide. There was, it was not perpetrated. They're lying. There's no such thing. All of a sudden now... Because that story no longer holds water, because the paperwork is open, the letters written in order what to do, how to do it, how to administer this policy, 
since those are all available, now they will switch gears, as propaganda machines always do, and they'll say to you that, you know what, it wasn't specific towards Ukrainians. Yes, there was a famine, but it was brought on by themselves. Or yes, there were deaths, but it wasn't only Ukrainians. Whereas the documents specifically say Ukrainians must be stopped and starved. I mean, it's, it's black and white in their KGB paperwork. And those documents are now all over the place available. Some of the quotes and some of the directives given to the Ukrainian commissars that were running the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic mm -hmm. for the Bolsheviks. Those communication letters are available and historians see them. So um, I think that what it is, it's, it's dodge and bob and weave. And if you can't beat them, join them. All kinds of propaganda types of uh, manipulation in order to take the onus off of the Russian Bolshevik regime. Mm -hmm. it, it just all kind of falls into place where I believe that, you know, Russia uh, does not want to take uh, ownership of, of what they did, um, whether that was a prior regime or not. Uh, there have never been anyone taken to international courts mm -hmm. or anything else for the uh, perpetration of this against the Ukrainian people and against the Ukrainian nation. Um, and we know that will, will probably not happen. Uh, but our job is to make sure that those millions of lives that were given, that this genocide, just as we talk about other genocides in Rwanda and, and elsewhere, that they don't happen again. Mm -hmm. That people don't stand by idly and allow those things to happen uh, in this world. And it doesn't matter who the nationality is or what country it's happening in. If we turn the other cheek and we allow it to happen, we're accomplices in these murders. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's why we should hold ourselves responsible for making sure that everyone is educated on these genocides, on the fact that bad people and bad regimes can do very bad things. Um, and that's no different today. Sure. Uh, we see things happening in Syria uh, to children and families and women. Atrocities. That should not be happening. And that's one of the reasons why the monument is necessary here and mm -hmm. why our commemorations are necessary. For instance, you know, we're children of immigrants, but we lead a much different life than our parents mm -hmm. did. And we live in American society. We have jobs, mortgages, homes, wives children, everything, and, and those tend to make you focus on life in a different perspective. And we've not had the suffering nor the war on our land here and, and things that our parents went through. So it's very easy mm -hmm. to become numb to it all mm -hmm. and forget about it and say, well, it, ha it happened, but, you know, what does it have to do with me? Yeah. And that is really the primary purpose is to not let it be forgotten because if lest we forget it, uh, it can be done again. And lest we forget it, it becomes uh, just a fairy tale uh, that might be told somewhere, but not really educated hmm. uh, amongst the masses. We feel it an obligation to educate and to make sure that it never happens to any culture, to anybody else. Um, it is not something that we just feel, oh, it, it's all about Ukraine and Ukrainians. No. It can happen to you, and it can happen in your country if you're not careful. 
And political regimes have the power and the ability to do such things. Mm -hmm. Similar to the other communities I've interacted with in this podcast series, the Ukrainians take it upon themselves to interpret the experience of the genocide famine as a more universal human story. But I would also say that these attempts to incorporate that story into the larger fabric of memory is in an earlier stage of development than the other places that actually house an education center in conjunction with the memorial space. Some factors that might limit this educational outreach is the actual location itself. Being about 25 miles west of Chicago, it's not very accessible to those in the city unless they have a car or they know about it. A consciousness of the educational outreach potential for the site has only really arisen within the last few years. Very interesting that we never really uh, promoted heavily uh, 10 years ago the fact that the monument was here. It was more for the Ukrainian community. Um, but in time, as the foundation started, uh, my good friends that are working in the foundation began to visit uh, schools. And the reason they did that is uh, the president at that time of the foundation, Mr. Nicholas Mishchenko, he fought and they put in a bill in the state of Illinois so that the curriculum here in grade schools would include the inclusion hmm. of the Ukrainian genocide as part of their genocide module. So teachers are, are recommended that they teach about these various mm -hmm. genocides to the student through the curriculum in the schools. John's referring to legislative mandates by the Illinois General Assembly. When first in effect in 1990, Illinois public schools were required to teach about the Holocaust specifically. And by the way, Illinois was the first state in America to pass such a mandate. But this mandate extended education on all genocides in 2005. So then the foundation began visiting various schools with presentations, uh, showing short movie clips, using uh, periodicals and, and, and pamphlets, uh, and addressing all the students. And as that got out more and more, and with the internet is also, I think, the primary catalyst for the visits, when people would look up or do studies on genocide, they would find it on the internet and know that it exists in Bloomingdale. And all of a sudden we noticed that buses, I would drive by, I live here locally, and I would be driving home from work and I would see a school bus here. And so yeah. I would turn in and pull in and ask them, you know, do you have any questions? I'm, I'm from the parish here. And uh, they would say, we're here to see the famine monument. We're studying genocide or we're studying Eastern European history or uh, various other topics that would lend themselves and it was always very interesting that the professors uh, that accompanied these students, whether they were College of DuPage or high school, uh, that's the majority I see as mm -hmm. high school and, mm -hmm. and college uh, level kids. They, uh, they researched it on the Internet, found it and came here. Um, and now uh, with the onset of the Internet, hopefully they can contact the Genocide Famine Foundation to have someone meet them here and give them the uh, paperwork and, and study materials, as well as give them a short synopsis of what happened. Uh, so that's in general what, what we see happening here more and more now. Since the increase in awareness to Ukrainian memory, St. Andrew's Church more recently erected another monument at the front of the church. This one responds to more recent events in Ukrainian history that John will talk about. But the inclusion of the famine victims in this new monument's significance shows how memory evolves within the community as more recent events expand the interpretation of genocide memory and how victims are grafted into part of a larger national struggle against oppression. That monument is dedicated to 
uh, the, were the, those that gave their lives in the revolution of dignity. So three years ago mm -hmm. with the occupation and annexation of, of, of Crimea mm -hmm. and the invasion of eastern Ukraine uh, with Russian troops, uh, again, the president, the former president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, was ousted. And uh, at that time during the demonstrations, um, primarily, again, Ukrainian people looking for a better life, looking for a better future, were promised basically that the president would sign on and we were, had hopes of uh, becoming a charter member of the European Union, mm -hmm. um, as well as we have hopes of having referendums on joining NATO. The president, unfortunately, at the 11th hour, decided that he was not going to appeal to become part of the European Union, which frustrated a lot of the younger and the students. Sure. So they started what they call the Euromaidan. They went out in the streets protesting. And within weeks, what ended up happening is uh, uh, basically uh, weeks to months that were out there in the freezing cold, again, in tent cities. Uh, they were given an order by the president, the uh, special forces, uh, Berkut, were given the order that they were allowed to shoot at these uh, protesters. And over 100 were killed, uh, but thousands have been killed. And right now, I think the number is over 3,000 uh, dead uh, in this current war with Russia um, over eastern Ukraine and the occupation of Crimea. At that point, uh, we decided that uh, we wanted to memorialize those heavenly hundred, as they're called. But in addition... Uh, put a monument up to all Ukrainians, no matter who they were, where they were, who gave their lives uh, in hopes of a free and in, in, in independent Ukraine. So this monument in the front on Army Trail Road uh, stands just to memorialize all those Ukrainians that lost their lives uh, while trying to achieve freedom mm -hmm. uh, and trying to protect Ukraine's sovereignty. And you would include the victims of the famine as part Absolutely. of the... Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there is the separate monument to them, but they are always included in our minds. In fact, last week, we have a tradition in the Orthodox Church. The week after Easter is St. Thomas Sunday, where we visit all of the graves and bless the graves. Mm -hmm. And we go out to the monument and have a general memorial service. And we always include those that died by the genocide famine mm -hmm. as a specific petition in that memorial service. Like the 1993 monument, this new one also features a cross as its centerpiece, but it doesn't have a representational or human-like sculpture with it. Instead, Ukrainian designer Yevhen Prokopov embedded much symbolism into the cross itself. I'll read you a short excerpt from what he said about the monument's design. Quote, I believe that a work of art may have many allegorical meanings, but there should be one leading idea that supports the content. The main idea of the monument is that one main symbol, being the cross, contains 100 crosses. 100 human destinies are unified by one belief that gives birth to one undying mass movement. The blue crosses symbolize the souls of the departed, and the white of those heroes whose destiny was to be spared. The highly polished steel surface of the monument will reflect the sky, which further supports the allegorical reference to the heavenly hundred. What we're doing here is we are trying hard to make sure that it is open to students and the general public. Um, I'm actually, I petitioned uh, uh, Governor Rauner to put up some signs on the local highways that there is a genocide famine monument here, turn at this exit, so on mm. and so forth. We're in negotiations right now to try and get that signage up uh, as a point of interest. 
I think that would lead more people here and to have literature there for them to take home with them right while visiting. If no one's here, there's a booklet that explains to you what the genocide famine in Ukraine was. Wow, that's fantastic. So I realize this was a longer episode, but I think John brought up some very good insights for understanding Ukrainian memory that I think are essential to include as part of this larger conversation I'm hoping to create. So in the memorial sites we've covered so far, it's been really interesting to see how individual communities incorporate their own cultural understandings of memory, such as, for example, the Jewish memory book at the Holocaust Museum, the urn and the singing bowl at the Cambodian Memorial, and here the cruciform symbolism and martyrdom that we've seen at these Ukrainian sites of memory. Yet all of these so far demonstrate a larger desire to make these sites places of active education. So in the first two communities that I looked at, the inclusion of an education center or a museum surrounding the memorial itself seems to be one viable route. But it remains to be seen how the Ukrainian community will develop uh, education on the famine. I'll certainly have to stay in contact with John and other active members of the Ukrainian community to see what's possible for the future. I do think there's something to be said for St. Andrews as a physical church and parish um, being a curating site of sorts for Ukrainian memory within that diaspora community. Like mentioned earlier, the church location preserves that central link with the old country. For those outside the Ukrainian community, such as myself, I'm interested to know what might best work to help the Ukrainian Americans share their story. I do think the internet and smartphone technology has certainly opened doors for making memory a more mobile experience, but I'd love to hear feedback and ideas from my listeners. Feel free to message me on Twitter at handlebar Sean T. Jacobson, or you can email me at sjacobson1 at luc.edu. That's all we have time for in this episode. In fact, I've gone over the time. But nonetheless, thanks for listening, and please subscribe to this series if you haven't already. Royalty-free music is provided by Les Hayden, Ukrainian Village Voices, and Vortex. This podcast has been produced and edited by Sean Jacobson. Audio recording equipment is courtesy of Loyola University's Digital Media Lab. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of Testimony.